I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Emily. She was involved in not one, but two serious cycling accidents, leaving her with a brain injury and PTSD. Let's talk about it. Well, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to sit down and chat with you, Emily. Um, you, uh, you've, you've led quite a life, um, and, and I think we're, we're going get to get into it. But uh, before we do, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners and give us and them a little bit of background into uh, who you are and, and what you're all about? Because uh, like I said, you've, you've led quite a life, and you're, you're sort of a an extreme athlete. I mean, I, pr- I guess not extreme athlete, but like in my, you mean like you're, you're extremely an athlete. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> Cause, Cause when you think extreme athlete, you think like skydivers, yeah. wingsuit divers, uh, I mean, who ski off of cliffs. And to me, anyone who's an athlete is an extreme athlete you know because I'm an extreme couch surfer. So, um, cycling can well, be pretty I also, dangerous. I do think that, yeah, like going down a descent, a road at 90 plus kilometers an hour, that's extreme with a helmet and Lycra. Yeah. That's extreme. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think it's extreme too. Yeah. And Taylor, you would certainly agree. I definitely agree. Taylor, you're so excited for this conversation. I am. I am. <laughs> I am a massive, I, I am cycling is my life. Like outside of this podcast, cycling is my life. So I'm very excited. I'm very excited to dive in and, and talk about all this stuff. So yeah, let us know. Let us know what what uh, what is your your um, your activity of choice and and how have you gotten to where you are today? Yes, my activity of choice right now. I have so many, um, but yeah, cycling, fly fishing, being outside, staying active in any any way really, depending on what I'm feeling of in the given moment, but. How I got to where I am, well, sports were not a part of my life growing up. Um, the opportunities to do so just weren't really there. After high school, I just wanted to become somebody. That's all mm. that mattered to me. And um, I became a dental hygienist of all things, only because I loved my dental hygienist at my dentist. And I thought, well, this person is happy. I'm going to do this. This is going <laughs> to make me happy. And um Worked in that field for eight years. At the age of 27, a friend of mine gifted me a road bike. I had been quite active. I taught fitness classes and uh, just worked out a lot, but nothing ever competitive. And I immediately fell in love with riding. And probably about a year after I started riding, a friend of mine suggested I ride, I I do a bike race. And I was like, yeah, sure. I don't even know what that is, but all right, I'll try it. (laughs) So it was a hundred mile bike race. And I showed up at the start line and it was in Arizona, like as naive as naive could be about sport, but I was just so happy to be out there. And, um, raced it. Well, I didn't even know I was racing. I was just riding and it was like, just keep up with the people at the front of the Peloton. And I finished, 
you know, in the top, like even amongst like some local pros and stuff like that, that were there. And, um, this like excitement and passion took over my life that I just like hadn't even ever experienced before. And, um, and it was kind of in that moment that I thought, yeah, I want to pursue this. And, went back home and was looking up other local bike races to do. And a few days later, I was out for a a ride and uh, it was in Arizona and uh, yeah, beautiful morning, sun's shining, riding in my full bike lane and a 83 year old woman runs a stop sign and T-bones me. um, So I landed very far from where I was hit, flew through the air and landed full impact on my head and down onto my face and was unconscious and had to be airlifted to a trauma hospital. And um, from there, my life totally changed. As a person who I was, who I thought I was, I was no longer. And um, six months after the accident, I well, four months after I was cleared to get on my bike again, I was medically cleared that I could ride again. And that's all I wanted to do was ride because I just wanted that feeling back that I had at that bike race of feeling like I was somebody feeling like I had something like, like a purpose in life almost. And, um, yeah, I, you know, got into racing, got into racing triathlon and any race that I could do I did. And so within my first year of racing, I raced 21 races. I podiumed 17 and I won 14 of them. And, oh, and, um, and then I did triathlon. I qualified for half Ironman world. I, I mean, just anything that I could do, I wanted to do. And, um, but you know, throughout those times was really struggling with a brain injury and really struggling with PTSD and was trying to hide all of it. And the bike was a tool for me that I could use to hide it. Um, and then fast forward again, four years from then, and I was racing at the professional level and, um, had just won, um, world championships for UCI Grand Fondo for the second time and was considering, gosh, maybe I should move to Europe to, to race, to continue this career over here. And opportunities were opening up and, um, on my last staged race of the season, I was in France and uh, descending down a mountain at 80 plus kilometers an hour and a, a vehicle got onto the course. And, oh, no. um, oh my God. My, the, the thing that I feared the most in my entire life happened again. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, spent eight days in hospital in France before, or maybe 10, one of them. Um, yeah. Before coming back to Canada and um Four months later, after bones were healed, got right back to racing at the professional level and uh, stayed doing that for a few months and just kept racing back to back to back to back. But um, yeah, something in my life had had shifted and um, I couldn't do it. I didn't not couldn't do it. I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to use the bike anymore as a way for me to um, make myself feel like I was worthy and to be a reason for me to run away um, from what it was that I was mm. going through. So wow. I'll stop there. <laughs> wow. I, I mean, okay. So like lots to dig into so many questions. Um, I like how we started by saying, Oh, it's cycling. It's not, not ex- 
technically an extreme sport, but uh, based I mean, on your experience, it, it sounds pretty extreme. Like it's yeah. super yeah. extreme sport. Um, I, first of all, I got to say, like, I mean, part of me not surprised that you went back to the bike after the first accident because, um, you know, Taylor and everyone on the uh, everyone who listens to the show or who has listened to the show for a while knows that Taylor was hit on his bike. And, you know, as soon as Taylor was good to go, he was back on his bike. No problem. And I remember a number of people being like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. Like, you'd think that that would shake you to the point of not wanting to get back on the seat and and get back on the road. Um, a saddle. Back, back, <laughs> on, back on, I mean, you know. My back bad. Back on the saddle. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, so to hear that you got back into it after... After that accident, I'm I'm not surprised. But the but the thing that really surprises me about it is that it wasn't like you had this long history of a career of cycling before your first severe accident, and and the fact that you just like immediately went back for it is it is a little bit surprising. Um, what you know, rewinding to that specific accident down in Arizona. What was the, what was that experience like? I mean, did you, I know that, that that's where you said that you experienced the brain injury. Mm-hmm. Like when we're talking about brain, like how specifically, what was the brain injury? Like, or, was it a super severe concussion or? Yeah. A closed, closed traumatic brain injury. Yeah. That took me years to recover from of, did- of memory loss of cognitive changes of, oh. um, you know, motion sickness to the point that I had to be taking medication at all times just to be able to, mm. to focus. Um, you know, I remember times of being on my bike when I got back on my bike and being home in Fredericton where I've lived most of my entire life and riding down a road and all of a sudden not even knowing where I was anymore, or how to get home. Um, and so much of it, like where I had such severe facial injuries, like I lost teeth, broke my jaw, my that is where so much of the focus went that it was easy for me to, um, you know, avoid talking about the brain injury. And at the time, a lot of the medical specialists, the focus was on my face. The focus Mm. was on how I looked and, um, you know, looking back, there were, there are a lot of things now that I'm like, okay, no, that's, that was not okay. How Mm. that was handled. Um, but it was how I wanted it to be handled because I didn't want to face, any of the, um, yeah, any of the cognitive changes and it being such a hard thing for me to understand. Like I wasn't familiar with traumatic brain injuries or what those were or anything like that. So it's like, I didn't even understand what I was going through, what was normal, what was not normal. So I couldn't put the words to it. So I couldn't therefore speak Mm. to what it was. And were they in the hospital when you, when you're being you know, like acutely treated, were they, did, did they know or did they speak with you about the level of brain injury that you had or might have and, and how to, how to deal with it? Or did all of this stuff kind of, all the, the, the heavy symptoms sort of surface after leaving the hospital? Yeah. Like I remember, um, you know, having four days of being just in a dark room in a hospital of, of no lights, no visitors, no anything so that nothing kind of triggered the symptoms that I was feeling. Um, but, um, to be honest, no, it wasn't really talked about a lot. Mm. And, um, 
yeah, it, it uh, you know, my mom really, um, really like tried to be proactive and speaking to me about it and, and all of that type of stuff. But I just, I pushed it away and I just told everyone that I felt totally fine. And all I wanted was to be home. All I wanted was to have everything back to, mm. to normal. Mm. So <laughs> when, when was this, what, like what year did this, in, the this first was 2000, 2013. Okay. When you, when you talked about, um, recovering and getting back on the bike after that first accident, you said it took about four months and you were right back on the bike, but how long did those, did the brain injury continue to affect you after you were quote unquote, like physically better able to get back to riding? I think to this day, I still have symptoms of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say it was, it was two years after that accident that I said, okay, now I really need help. Like I was in such a dark place that it was like, I had to go and get help. And, um, yeah, it was working with different specialists, you know, even from then of trying to understand like, why am I feeling the way that I'm feeling and, and trying to differentiate too, like what here is PTSD, what here Mm -hmm. is the brain injury, like it, it, there's so much to kind of decipher between. Um, but yeah, it was two years after where I really took it seriously and said, okay, I need to start working with a psychologist. I need to kind of find out more of what is, um, what is going on and and learning better coping mechanisms. And and when you made that decision, was this, uh, at what point was the second accident? Was that prior to the second accident? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it was two years prior. It was, um, I had just won Canadian Masters Nationals for cycling and um, was driving home to New Brunswick from Quebec. And all of these messages were coming in, people calling me, whatever else, saying, you're so strong, you're such an inspiration. And thinking to myself, like, what the heck am I trying to prove here to people? Like, cause I felt so broken inside. It was like, I was putting on this. I mean, yeah, physically was I strong and an incredible athlete, but inside I felt like an absolute mess. And, um, I remember pulling over off of an exit on the highway back and calling my mom and saying, mom, like I need help. And, um, and making a commitment to myself right then and there that I was going to spend as much time focused on my mental health that I was my physical training. And was there anybody else in your life that, I mean, you you had mentioned that your mother sort of made attempts to speak to you about what had happened, but was there anyone else in your, in your circle that was kind of aware in the very least that you were struggling internally? I think my sisters, but otherwise, no. And, and I, at that time, I shut myself off from a lot of my friends. I shut off a lot of relationships because it was easier to not mm. face people. I didn't want people asking me how I was doing because I hated having to lie. I didn't want to have the conversations. So I stepped away from a lot of relationships. Mm. Um, you know, my best friend got married that summer and I chose to not go. Um, and mm. like just so many different things like that. I just, I couldn't handle being around people in in a lot of ways. Did you like through the work that you did to try to get to the bottom of, you know, the PTSD, the, the brain injury, did you, did you come to any sort of conclusion as to where that mentality 
stemmed from? Like, do you know why you you wanted so badly to sweep this under the rug and distance yourself from people and and like not want to face the 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 challenges that come with having to like deal with your own mental health and and you know ramifications of of such a traumatic incident? Yeah, I do. Um, now I do. You know, growing up, I um, was incredibly shy, like to the point that I had to go to speech therapy because my teachers didn't even think I could speak in elementary school oh, yeah. and had very low self-confidence, had very little feeling of, of self-worth, like even as a teenager and everything. And I never felt like I was smart, like learning always. Now I realize that like, yeah, no, I'm really intelligent. I just have a certain learning style, but going mm-hmm. through academic school, like I never felt smart, like everything always felt like a struggle. Mm-hmm. And the bike was the one thing that I finally felt really good at and finally mm-hmm. gave me confidence and gave me a feeling of self-worth. And so it was so important for me to get back on the bike so that I could get back to that feeling. Right. How, how did you, right. how did you approach, how did you approach that? Because, um, when I, when I got hit, I, um, I, I, I had a very similar, um, like, circumstance in terms of like how the accident unfolded. I was 50 kilometers downhill, 50 kilometers an hour downhill. Somebody turned left in front of me and I T-boned him and I broke my pelvis and ribs and blah, 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 blah. And I remember very shortly afterwards, people asking me about like being back in the bike, like how are you going to feel being back in the bike? And I thought about that and, and my brain really works very numbers driven. And I went, you know, I've ridden my bike, you know, hundreds of times I get in one accident, that's X percentage likelihood. And so, you know, what are the odds of me getting in another accident? I can control my, you know, all I can do is control what I'm doing and, you know, all this rational thinking, but Taylor's the type of person that like, if we're in the airport and a plane crashes on the runway outside and we're about to board a flight, he's like, amazing. Because now I know for sure that statistically our flight won't crash. It's not, not going to be us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and and then amazing. And then I had I had access, luckily to um, to insurance that would you know cover therapy. And and I thought to myself, even though I didn't feel like I would, I thought I should go see a therapist and see and explore how I feel about getting back on the bike because I was also like super adamant of. The first day that I'm able to, mm-hmm. I'm back on the bike. And and I really wasn't sure going into it. Like, I felt like I had an idea of how I felt. But at the same time, I was going, is that just me rationalizing? And is that just me telling my another version of me that's telling me a story that I'd like to hear rather than how I actually feel or how it's really going to feel when I get back on the bike and start going down the street and I'm with cars and blah, 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 blah. Um, how how did you approach getting back on the bike and what did it feel like to go on that first ride after your accident? Yeah, terrifying. And it took me a few weeks. Um, I remember the first time getting suited up, kitted up to get on my bike and I couldn't even make it up my door. And then the next day I would go and I would try it again. And I remember one day, like a week later, I got to the end of my driveway and I couldn't do it. Like I just broke down in tears and it was like, I mean, I was suffering with PTSD so bad that any noise would throw me off. Mm-hmm. And so even just the feeling of, of, of feeling a car or seeing a car or somebody like closing a car door, like anything would just set me off into like 
my body would just tremble. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it took me a few weeks and eventually I drove my bike to a highway that hadn't yet been open, was under construction. And I rode there for the first month and, um, building back up my confidence again. And eventually I got to the point where that feeling that I had of being on the bike was back and the, the, the rewards far outweighed the risks Mm -hmm. and I could, I could race and ride fearlessly Mm. and but it always being in the back of my mind of yeah like this is a possibility and there were certain times where my fears would get the best of me and I would just kind of pull over and have a little breakdown um but as hard as that time was the second time around after I got hit I remember being in the hospital and thinking like okay I've got this. I have been through this before. I know what to do, everything else. And um, getting back on the bike the second time was so challenging, Mm. like so challenging. And to this day, I'm not the same rider. Mm. And like, and one of the, this is more of a comment on cycling in general, but one of the, one of the most incredible things about bike racing is that the the stadium in which you perform is just the infrastructure that is is lived on so for bike racing you know you can people can go to a bike race and they just have to show up on the side of the road and also it's one of the worst things because the infrastructure is based on you know like taxes <laughs> and how people construct mm. roads and the condition of those roads and you have to go over them and it's not just you know the the you know the rink staff that make the ice it's not just so con- confined to that it's so there's so many other aspects, but I mean, that's, I, I saw that happen a few, a few times last year in the world tour where a car came onto the course. Mm. And when you have a course that's going A to B and it's a hundred kilometers, 120, 150, 200 kilometers. I mean, there's so many areas in terms of like security for keeping cars off the, off the course and how, how challenging that, I mean, what was, what was the response what was the like? What happened about about that? That 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 a car got onto the course, like was that was there just pandemonium about that? Because I know that when it does happen, it's pretty fucking crazy. Yeah, it's um, you know that is actually a topic that, to be honest, I've never really publicly spoken about out of fear. And um, when it happened, I you know was. I laid in a ditch for an hour and a half before an ambulance was even sent to me. Oh my Whoa. God. Um, I, uh, you know, and I don't even know right now what I feel comfortable saying and I don't know why that is or what that is about, but um, yeah, I was taken to a, a hospital far away from where the race was and um, it, you know, uh, journalists and stuff had no way of getting in contact um, with me and, um, yeah, it was not handled in a very good way. It, in a lot of ways, um, made me feel completely worthless. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I did have threats from certain individuals that if I spoke publicly about what happened, I'd never race at the professional level again. And, um, Yeah. And then I questioned of like, gosh, was I at fault? Like, did I do something? Which no, is so Uh, wrong. That is not, (laughs) but you do, you start questioning stuff and, 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 you know, teammates who 
gosh, like you risk your life racing for this team and then something happens and it's like, okay, like, where are you guys? Nobody's nobody's going to check in on me. Um, And so, yeah, it's, you know, unfortunately I've heard a lot of and, and witnessed a lot of really horrible things. Is that the case for every race venue? Absolutely not. Like mm. definitely not. So I don't want to paint that as, as just one solid picture, but um, in my situation, yeah, it was really, really awful. Mm. And so it's like you, I had the experience of being hit by a car again, physical injuries, broken bones, all of that stuff. And also the feeling of being abandoned in a ditch for an mm. hour and a half yeah. being basically like feeling like I was totally abandoned by my team being stuck in a hospital where I don't speak French. I had no clue, like even really what my injuries were. My family had no way of knowing where I was, how to get a hold of me. I mean, there was just so many things that you think like, wow, I've devoted my life basically to this bike. I have ruined friendships. I Mm. have missed like, you know, my nephew being born and like family events for this bike. Yet when you can't race anymore, you're, I just felt like I was like, yeah. I mean, Mm. literally you're just left on the side of the road. There's, there's a, and and you don't have to, you don't have to agree or not agree. You can just stay completely silent on that, on this. But my personal speculation on that is, is bike racing, pro racing is, is a very fragile sport in the way that it is not, it's not set up the way that, you know, the big sports are hockey, football, baseball, whatever, you know, teams are reliant on sponsorships and the races are reliant on sponsorship dollars and when those come under criticism, there's a, there's a huge risk of the, the, the not very many dollars that there are available to not be there at all. Mm. And, and cycling, in my opinion, in the way that it's funded, the way that teams are funded, the way that events are funded, is, is, is behind and needs a structural change in general so that people can feel like when something like that happens that they can be extremely critical and so that mm. it doesn't happen again. And that's something that, that I think that from you know, my spectator position needs to change uh, a lot in cycling. Like I know that there's a, there's a, there's a, a riders association, like, like a unionization effort that has happened at the high level at the world tour level for a few years that never really seemed to get off the ground because it's just like there's an NHLPA or whatever riders don't have the same protections as like the big sports and it's, Mm. and it, and it really impacts riders negatively and, and disproportionately in the female ranks, um, which has come a long way in the last few years. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a big, I think there's a, there's a kind of a big groundswell on the female side of cycling that I really love to see, but definitely needs to be better. And, and in general, that's Mm. my, that's, there's my personal rant on pro cycling. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. You've spoken now a couple times about um, your identity and especially how even after the first accident, your identity still sort of stayed. Um, you identified as this cyclist because it sort of it sounds like it gave you um, this this sort of value in life. But then after the second accident, it seems like that started to shift. Is that true? Yeah, it is. Um, a couple of years before I my second accident, I you know, started to connect again with other things that, um, you know, I am passionate about. (laughs) And one of those things was fly fishing. And I started to do other things to bring more balance to my life. So whether it was fly fishing or horseback riding or, you know, hiking on my days off, like there was more, I was, I was pulling back more things of my life and starting to recognize that I don't want my identity to be only as a cyclist. And it doesn't have to be in order for me to still do really well. Like, do I have to spend Mm. X amount of hours like training and nutrition and proper sleep and all that kind of stuff? Yes, but I can still have a life outside of it. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so during my time in France in the hospital where I was, all alone, it was a real time of self-reflection on um, who I was and that my identity was not only as an athlete, that was something that I did, that was something that, um, you know, in many ways was a tool to help show me skill sets that I could apply to other aspects of my life. Um, But I still, I loved racing. I loved competing and I was good at it. And there was that desire in me you know, like I am a competitive person. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so I loved that side of it. And so I wanted to go back to it to continue to do that. Um, but I certainly didn't associate myself anymore as one, well, just a cyclist. Mm-hmm. Totally. Do you, yeah. do you think that 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 seek that 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 seeking for balance outside of cycling initially came from your experiences through? through therapy and, and through navigating the, you know, the differences between the PTSD and the, and the, the head trauma and the conversations that you were having with your, your therapist? It did. Yeah. Through my therapist and through, um, through just a lot of self-reflection through on my recovery days, when I was living in Arizona, I would go up to Sedona and just be by the water and the water just has always felt like a safe place for me. And, um, there was a little Creek And I would go there every Monday afternoon after I finished my little recovery ride and would just sit there. And it was in those moments that I um, began feeling even safe within myself to explore what it was that I was going through. And, um, you know, that is what kind of started to open that up and then being able to process that more with with a therapist and with my mom, who's also a therapist. And... um, yeah, seeing then that um, just, I guess, really recognizing that there were areas of my life and trauma that has been so compartmentalized that I needed to start opening up those boxes and being mm. by the water was a safe place for me to um, 
emotionally, mentally be able to do those. And physically, because I, I even though I was back to riding, I was always afraid of getting hit by a car again. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, being by the water, like just away from traffic, all that kind of stuff. Did, um, and, and sorry, I went to use the bathroom, so I'm not, hopefully I didn't miss a similar question to this or that you've moved on. But when you got back on the bike, did that did did that progression of how how you you know you said it took a few weeks to to get back on the bike after the first accident did that um how did that help or help or take away from how your mental health was uh was uh, was happening for you in the in your everyday life like in your social like what did it did it help getting back on the bike and kind of getting over that obstacle when you you know, going into conversations and relationships and everything like that? Or was it a take, what did it take away from it? Short term for me, I would say it helped long term. I think it had the complete opposite effect because, Mm -hmm. um, the bike in many ways, I mean, there were healthy reasons with it and there was plenty of good from it, but it was, if I was riding it, like, like it was, um, yeah, it was a way for me to kind of disregard what it was that I was going through. And it became a topic of conversation for people mm. and myself of they're not going to talk to me about my accident or what I'm doing because I'm winning bike races. I'm winning triathlons. I'm like doing all of this stuff. And so that is what the focus was. And that's mm. where I wanted the focus. Mm. Um, and, but then long-term seeing that, wow, yeah, no, that wasn't okay um in the bigger picture because i never did work through that stuff and when you don't work through those stuff well it doesn't go anywhere it's coming up eventually Mm. right so like long you know look in like hindsight hindsight looking back on getting back on the bike and 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 when in relation to your accident like it probably would have been obviously hindsight's 2020 would have been a better would have been better to push that to kick that can a little further down the road and deal with deal more heavily with the stuff that was going on with your mental health before you made that step to be on the bike again. Yeah. Or combination of the two. Um, you know, I, I think that it was okay that I got back on the bike. Um, but yeah, in hindsight, uh, would it have been better if I had dealt with my mental health? 100%. (laughs) What were the, what were the, what were your, and again, this is probably much more clear in hindsight and hard to see in the moment, but what were your, what was your perception around the taboo nature of, of addressing those things? Like the stigmas that, that, that exist in the relationships that you have. I know you said your mother's a therapist, so that's, that's interesting. Um, and like how, yeah, what were, what, what were your perceived, um, perceived like stigmas and taboos around talking about your mental health and how did your mom and her being a therapist play into you thinking about that and addressing that? It, um, I would say for other people, I would be and have always been fully supportive of them in that, but I was naive that I could suffer with it. And, um, and I did very much of myself view it as a weakness. Um, a lot of the times the way I was feeling and things I was struggling with, like I felt at times like I was going completely crazy. And, um, so yeah, I was embarrassed to talk about it. To be honest, it's only been within the last year, maybe that I have felt more confident in being able to say, yeah, there were many, many, many days where I wished 
that I didn't even survive that first accident mm. because it was so hard to go through the emotions of what it was. Like I would never have admitted that before um, to myself, let alone to anybody else. But yeah, that was the level of desperation that I that I was in. It's like you live in, I lived in constant, yeah, fear, constant mm -hmm. fear. And and I um, you know, I have some friends who were hit by cars and didn't survive. And there was a part of me that thought, why was my life spared when other people's weren't? And so I had to like, you know, kind of carry on this legacy of, of like being the one that like, okay, my life was spared. Now I need to do something with it. And I need to do something really big with it. Like I need to win world championships. I need to be like pro athlete, all of this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So there were so many different things that were kind of at play there in my mind. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's hard to, I, I really identify like growing up as, as an athlete and thinking about speaking about mental health or, or being open about like going through struggle. It does, it feels like a weakness, like growing up as an athlete, because, you know, as soon as you open up about a weakness, then that's a vulnerability and your vulnerabilities like could equal you losing in competition. So you, you learn to like try to shove those down and, and avoid addressing them. But it's so interesting, like actually going through, going through the process of recording this podcast over the past six years and having vulnerable conversations and opening up about our, our mental health and learning about how hard it is to have these conversations, even when you know that it's helpful and you know that it's the right thing to do, it still is mm. hard. It's hard mm -hmm. to, to say things, you know, to be vulnerable with the people that you love because you don't want them to see you as, as being weak or, or not okay in certain situations. But at the end of the day, when you do, you realize that it's not a weakness to do that. In fact, it takes an incredible amount of strength to be honest about what you're going through and maybe you're hurting or suffering at the time, but the amount of strength that it takes to open up about that is far greater than the amount of strength it takes to shove that down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's such a good point. It's so, yeah, it is like, it really does take strength to open up and to be vulnerable and to expose ourselves. But, you know, now, like I am at a point in my life where I would rather people see me for me than mm, something yeah. that I'm not mm. and learning to let that pride go, learning to let ego go. And life was way easier when we just accept who we are and be yeah. who we are instead of trying to be somebody else. Isn't yeah. life so fucked up though, in the sense that like, you know, we think that like we have to accomplish these things and we set out to like to achieve success in all these different areas of our lives. And for like, for what purpose at mm. the end of the day, right? Like it's, yeah. and as somebody who chased that for a long time in my life growing up, like I wanted to go to the Olympics for a really long time. And then, you know, I wanted to get a, a good paying job and climb the corporate ladder and achieve success in all these different areas. And then you start to think about it and it's like, for what? Like, yeah. I mean, there's for, a lot of like, what? there's Why? a lot of like, it, it, it's internal and external or the internal can be related to external. And what I mean by that is the expectation that we have for people's expectations on us. And so like we think that, or it's very common to think I need to do these things 
so that somebody else uh, thinks that I've done something cool or good, or it's, I want to do this so that I feel that I've done that. But that, but that is based on so oftentimes another external mm-hmm. factor of some other person or some other group or uh, what, whatever it is. And, and I, I think about it in the, in the, in the realm of, um, you know, when you're looking for your keys and you can't find your keys, you can't find your keys. And then you're like, fuck this. I'm just not going to go. And then all of a sudden, like, there's your keys. Like when you, <laughs> when you let go, and I know this is, this is kind of cliche or it, it seems cliche cause I'm in the yoga world. So saying like, don't have expectations seems really overplayed, but it really is an incredible <laughs> tool that when you release the weight of expectation performance, your, your performance in, in most areas of your life is enhanced by relieving the pressure of expectation, whether that's the expectation that you place on yourself or the expectation that you feel others have placed on you. And it, you know, it's incredibly liberating to, to offload that from yourself. Mm. I've been thinking more about, uh, since I, I, best thing I've done in my entire life is get a dog. And in the last, uh, four months, I've been thinking about like the joy that having a dog brings me. And I've been thinking more about like, how can I create more experiences in my life that give me the feeling of what a dog brings to me? Because that's what I want. Like more joy like that rather than like more material. Yeah. Like, well, you know, what brings, you know, what brings that feeling. Joy. What's that? Get a dog for your dog. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah wow. It's like it's like double it, it compounds it's fucking crazy. Whoa, yeah. Holy yeah. shit. But you have to stack wait. It. You have to you wait until it. your dog now is fully trained so that your fully trained dog trains the new train, dog. Like helps train oh. the other yeah. dog. Yeah. Do you think? And then your dog is getting that feeling yeah. too. Could I build an army of dogs? Like yeah, how yeah, like yeah, yeah. to yeah. what level does that start to like lose its power? Uh, there's definitely it never dimin- stops giving back. So there, I could have a dog for my dog's dog. No, never. There might be diminishing returns at some point. I don't know. You just gotta upgrade your living situation. That's all. That's right. Yeah. To a farm, you need a It'll become financially <laughs> detrimental at some point. Uh, Emily, I want to I want to know uh, a little bit about your journey into finding joy after coming to the realization after the second accident that you know this career path as an athlete who is professionally racing like just isn't going to work. Like this is you 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 need to move on from this, and so. Which is hard. We, like for, for any athlete who comes to the end of that career, that's a really there, there's a lot of grief that comes with that transition. And so, what was your process in in trying to seek out joy after that that realization? Yeah, well, I think, and it kind of like you know touches on um, you know those previous comments about how you know I think in anything in life, all, we're chasing feelings. Like whether, whatever your expectation is, whether it is buying a million dollar home, owning a sports car, winning Ironman, like whatever it is, like we're chasing a feeling. And when we can start to understand what those feelings are that we're chasing and then look and see, okay, where else can I get this in my life? And that was for me for bike racing. I loved to win. 
because I loved the feeling. I loved the happiness that it brought me, but it brought me happiness, not joy, happiness. It was very mm. based on a circumstance. And then the next day it usually went away. Or even in those moments, a lot mm. of the times it wasn't good enough. And, um, and so learning the difference between the two, between happiness and joy, and that joy is something that we can always have in our lives, no matter what it is that we are going through, it is not based on our circumstances. And you know, so so just spending more time being present, spending more time being present with my family, my friends, connecting to what it was that I was doing, whether it was when I was riding, whether it was on those, whether like I was fly fishing um, and really allowing myself to feel what I was feeling, because that is the joy that is it's like it is just so deep within my spirit. And mm. I didn't necessarily ever make the choice to stop bike racing. I, um, you know, had just, it was like, I went back to racing after the second accident and I was racing the tour Gila, which is in New Mexico, like probably the toughest North American stage race. I had just raced three back-to-back -back stage races. I was sick, motion sick, like or altitude sick. Like my body was like, everything about this sucks. And uh, it was on the final stage on the final climb that I thought, what am I doing? Like, what is the feeling right now that I am chasing this feeling of finishing something? Because I finished a lot of things before in my life. And I don't need a bike race now to prove to me that I can do something. And so in that moment, I kind of made the choice to just take a few months off of bike racing and, you know, told my coach, okay, I'm not going to race for the rest of the summer, but I'm going to go back and I'm going to train to race for worlds for the third time. And so I spent my summer <laughs> just spending more time fishing, more time with friends and family, but also really focused on training, just not racing. And, um, in that summer as well, my dad was diagnosed with, with cancer, which mm. really kind of you know, put into perception more of what life was about, more of what was really meaningful for me. And about a month before I was going to go race um, world championships. And like, I mean, my fitness was so peak. <laughs> like, it was like, even now I look back at my training and I'm like, Oof, damn. <laughs> um, but an opportunity came up to go on a fly fishing trip in Belize. And there was just this like, it was like a light switch went off and I just knew like that is what I needed to go and do mm. that week instead of like going and racing worlds again. And um, yeah, after that, it was the season was kind of over and I don't think I ever kind of made the conscious choice to stop racing. I just started finding other things that I really love to do and um, being more focused on that. Mm. I think that's, that's really, that is a, a the, a huge takeaway I hope for like any of our, any of our listeners, I know that I, that resonates so deeply with me from leaving hockey in my, when I, when I was 20 and not knowing what to do and not knowing what I was without that and realizing that the feelings that I got from the thing that I was doing were present in so many other places, like the positive things that 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 hockey gave to me they were they were present uh they were present in a lot of places and they were they were present and 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 honestly it wasn't really until I found biking that I that I that I got like the biggest dose of that again mm. and, came, and came back to sport on my own terms and not on the terms of my teammates or the terms of what I thought was 
my dad's expectation of me, which didn't even ever exist to begin with. Um, and, and that was a huge, uh, and that was a huge learning for me. And, and the joy that came from not, not needing to win, but the joy of competition, like the joy of like friendly competition of just throwing, throwing your hat in the ring for like the last 10 K of a group ride and, and just going for it and pushing yourself, but not giving a shit really what the result is. And just being like, Oh man, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm cooked. And I love that feeling of that. I emptied the tank and, Mm. and, and, and really, Mm. and really just gave everything that I had to try and, to try and to just have fun. Yeah. And I like, as, as much as I'm like a competitive person, I actually really struggled with competing against other people. That's why I loved time trial. Cause it was just me. Mm. Like it was mm. literally me against the clock. And one of the things that I struggled with the most was the aggressiveness that does come with racing. Um, and I wasn't good at that, but I was very competitive with myself and I loved, and I still to this day love it. Um, cause I still train every day in some way or another, but seeing like, how far can I push my body? Like in a healthy way, but just being able to physically see that like, yeah, like there, there are no limits. Like mm, it yeah. is, it's so crazy to me. What can happen when we put it all like what we are capable of yeah. achieving mm-hmm. i'm really glad that you brought up the time trial because I, I looked at, at your instagram and i saw that you are, are are really into uh the time trial bike and 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 the time trial is such time trial is such a is so is so unique in the way that the mental game that is mm. the time trial like i was I'm, I'm really happy that you brought that up and gave a little insight into into what that what that mental game is because, you know, keeping your setting a, setting a pace or setting a goal for a pace or a power or whatever, and, and keeping that and keeping that, you know, in the last 10% of that, of that effort and the thoughts that come into your mind, like the peaks and the valleys that you go through when you are trying to pace yourself to drain your tank to the perfect, you know, down to the second, you know, like that's a, that's a, that's a dark, you can go to a dark place and it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating place to come out of mm-hmm. and, and look back and go, wow, I was, I really wanted to quit. I wanted yeah. not just to quit. I wanted to be not alive. Like I wanted to be dead. <laughs> when you can feel like blood or taste blood in yeah. the back of your throat and your eyes are like popping out of your head and there's just like snot coming all down your face and you do not care. Like yeah. mm. those moments. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it, it lends, it lends itself and many things can do this. So it's not like, Oh, you gotta go and pick up bike no. racing and be a time trialist. <laughs> but you know, it lends itself a lot to, to how, for me, at least how I manage my mental health on a day-to-day basis in my everyday life, that I can go, oh, I remember what it was like to be in that in that state then and how I'm feeling now, which is shitty relative to my baseline or my up feeling, but it's not that. Yeah, it's, And it, I got yeah. through that. It's interesting because uh, Taylor's uh, partner, Kyle, is pregnant and she's about to give birth and she's really nervous about like the, the process of actually giving birth. And Taylor keeps saying, like, 
and it's actually not that bad because you know I constantly am going to these dark places when I'm biking, and he's like, I've experienced pain where I like literally don't want to be alive anymore, and like really trust me, you'll be totally. And you'd fine. be surprised; she really, really connects with that. It's, yeah, it's, really good. It. it's, it's funny because it. I have three sisters, and two of my sisters have children, and yeah, I try and relate to their 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 motherhood by being an athlete, and now it does not go over well. You're like God, you're like what you felt in your vagina is what I feel in my legs. <laughs> yeah. I know what you're going through. Just yeah. breathe. All yeah. you've got to do is breathe. Yeah, yeah everyone loves uh, to hear that advice. Yeah, um, it's, uh, one, one other thing I want to add to that is, like, there's, there's something incredible about, like, the resilience of athletes and the way that, like, you go to those places and the lessons it teaches you. But um, uh, past guest of the podcast, uh, Julia Orlick, she came on and shared the story about her father's journey through Alzheimer's. And uh, he passed away this past year, but he was a renowned sports psychologist. His name is Terry Orlick. And uh, he spoke, he had this uh, philosophy called simple joys. And he talked a lot about like the simple moments in life that bring you joy. And and today uh, I was leaving the gym and I was walking out of the gym. I, I just started going to the our local sportsplex here and there's a hockey rink inside. And I was, I, I had like an extra five minutes and I wasn't in a rush when I was leaving and and I decided I saw these guys playing a game of pickup hockey and so I walked in I just sat down in the stands and sat there and watched for like 10 minutes and it was like it just filled me with so much joy just sitting there watching them play this game and like taking a minute to like breathe and relax and Mm -hmm. be present and not think about like where I'm going next or what I have to do and uh, I was thinking about Terry when I was sitting there and I was like, ah, this is what he meant. This totally. is a, a simple joy. And and it's funny because like we define our lives by like these big things that we're chasing all the time. But like really, you know, what I'm, you know, only starting to like barely sort of grasp the concept is, is like, oh, you can appreciate like even just sitting in a hockey rink watching some old guys who sucked at fucking hockey. They were terrible <laughs> hockey players watching them skate around the ice. just having a good time. And I could enjoy watching them. Yeah. Like that was a, empty a rink pretty is a cool sacred feeling. place. Mm. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about cadence for, for a little bit. Uh, you've got a, a documentary that is, uh, running through the festival circuit right now. Um, what's the documentary about? And, and, you know, if people are, are in a city where it might be playing, what, what can they expect? Yeah, the, um, so we have two versions of the documentary. There's the film festival version, which is the shorter one. And then there is uh, currently a longer version is being edited that's going to be out on a national broadcasting corporation that uh, you guys are associated with. That rhymes and with so- <laughs> me, me, me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, it's, it's really kind of it tells my story and uh it's funny because the short version or even when when I first kind of agreed to do this and was speaking with a production company and telling my mom about it my mom's like how are they gonna take everything you've been through and condense it into a movie (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah the short version of the story it um you know it goes over my my experience of being an athlete an elite level athlete of my uh cycling accidents um, finding fly fishing in the process. It's very much a cycling fly fishing film. Um, and really speaking to mental health and speaking to the lessons that I have learned along the way and continue 
to learn. And the longer version is more of an extended version um, of that. Who knows what mm-hmm. will come of it. That's kind of up to the editors as to what they take out of the weeks and weeks of filming. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Cadence is currently in the, uh, we'll be making the rounds um, in film festivals, I guess, over the world, over the next year. And um, film festivals are constantly kind of being updated um, on the website for that. And yeah, just started kind of doing some private screenings for it, which has been a really weird experience, to totally. be honest. Yeah. Uh, having other people kind of see a glimpse into my life that I've tried to hide from people for mm. so long. Are you, um, this might be a question for when we stop rolling, but I'll let you, are you doing, um, are, are you, are you doing any, any, um, screenings where you are, uh, where you are kind of like off, like getting like volunteers, I guess, to, to like screen it for you in any places, or is it all like very set up? Cause I'm wondering, cause if, if, if that is the case, then I would like to organize a screening cause I'm, yeah. I'm very much in the cycling community. So if that's not happening, then. No, then that is okay, happening. But. And that's something that I have recently said that, um, yeah, I really want to be able to do more private screenings. Um, I want to, I, I am doing screenings where, well, in some of the bigger festivals that I'm going to be going to and, and doing some speaking at as well. Um, but I think that, um, you know, from what I have seen and heard from people so far is that even if you're not a cyclist or an angler, that there's a lot of relatability Mm. in that and being able to carry on the conversation after. Um, My reason for agreeing to do the film was not to necessarily have my story told for me. It was a matter of it being told because it's a film of impact and I want it to spark conversation. I want it to spark curiosity in others and, um, and for it to really yeah, like evoke, evoke change and curiosity in others. So mm. long answer or to that of, of, yeah, there is uh there is, that can happen. So we awesome. can, we can set something up. Can, can you, this might be a dumb question, but um, it seems like everybody who's into fly fishing is super into it, but I've never <laughs> gone fly fishing before. And, uh, and I'm, I'm wondering like, what, what is it that is so amazing about fly fishing and why should I try it? <laughs> That's a great question. That is a great Ryan. question. Um, I love it because for one, I think you, I think it takes you to some of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, there is a skill set that goes into it, a very uh, you know, gracefully timed skill set. I think it is something that really captivates you. Like you have to be fully focused on what it is that you're doing. And there's so many variables that go into it. It's something that you're constantly learning. Like you're never really fully like the expert in it because there's so, I mean, all you got to do is go to a different river or go to a different mm. country or, um, but it uh, and there's there's that competitive side in it of like and it is a sport like you are literally like I mean it's like if you're fighting a thirty plus pound salmon or a seventy plus pound tarpon or like, oh, cool. it is a sport <laughs> and for me it's been something that you know it's taken me to places all over the world like it's brought me to the Amazon jungle it's brought me to New Zealand it's brought me to Chile and Argentina and like it's just it's such a way to explore this 
beautiful world. And um, yeah, like it just makes my heart like <laughs> bubble up with excitement. I'll take you. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to go. I hear, I hear yeah. we have yeah. some uh, really, really great. F- I have no idea because I'm not in, I'm not in the scene, but I hear that in Cape Breton, there's some pretty incredible fly fishing that um, uh, actually uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine has a helicopter company that he flies people into. And I don't think like it would be extremely hard to get to it unless you, unless you were to be flown into it. That's cool. Well, we could set that up when we screen the film. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. I'm in. Let's do it. I'm so in. I really want to see the the movie too. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to watch it. uh, Again, the documentary is called cadence. Uh, The website for the documentary is emilyrogercadence.com. Um, Emily, before we wrap, I want to ask you a question that we ask most of our guests and it's a two-parter. Um, the first part is what would you say that your brain injury and your, your bike accidents, what would you say is the biggest thing that those have taken away from you? Taken away from me, self-doubt that I can't overcome things. And what would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you? joy, life. Mm. Yeah. The ability to get to know myself. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it has given me the opportunity to really see deep down how, how strong, how capable I truly am. This has been an absolute pleasure to sit down and to get to speak to you about your, your experience as an athlete, as a cyclist, as an angler, um, and you know, I, it's, it's one of those conversations that, uh, I feel is really going to touch a lot of our listeners. And I just want to say thank you on behalf of Brian Taylor, myself, thank you for mm-hmm. taking time out of your day to sit down and chat with us. Thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure. And like I said, before we started rolling, I love what you guys are doing and the stories that you are sharing and spreading in the world and the messages that you guys are putting out. And this is so important. So Thank you for having me on a guest. And I look forward to the next time that we all connect on the water. Yeah, I can't wait. There we go. All right, folks, there you have it. That was our conversation with Emily. What a lovely conversation it was. And uh, honestly, I'm just stoked to get out into the wilderness with her and learn how to go fly fishing. So hopefully that'll happen sometime in the near future. Uh, Thanks for supporting the podcast, folks. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and a review. If you're listening on Spotify, make sure you're following. And you can also leave a rating there now. So we'd love to see those uh, five-star ratings come in flooding. Um, and of course, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we come at you with those Friday episodes <clears throat> being found. <clears throat> oh my God. Those Friday episodes being found over on YouTube. So, uh, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and hit the bell icon. You know, the deal, uh, folks, this has been a pure joy. Love that all of you are supporting the show and that you're listening. We love you all. Sick boy podcast is produced by myself, Brian Stever and Taylor McGilvery. We are managed by Jeffrey Lonis. Sound design is from our friend Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The theme music for this week's episode is from Take Part. And that is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.